Hi everyone, Anna here, and welcome to our second episode. Firstly, I just wanted to start by thanking everyone for their support for the show so far. We've had a lot more listeners than expected after our first episode launch, and on behalf of all of us on the podcast, thank you so much for listening. In this episode, I had a really interesting conversation with Eric Didrikson. Eric is a musician, songwriter, as well as the author of the book Pop Sonnets. In his book, he takes modern pop songs and rewrites them into the style of Shakespearean sonnets. We did a little analysis on a few boy band songs and also discussed other topics such as pop punk, disco, and New Jack Swing. Please enjoy this episode of This Must Be Pop. Today, we have a special guest, Eric Digdrickson. He is the author of Pop Sonnets. Welcome, Eric. How you doing? Good. How about yourself? Doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so excited to have you here today, and we really want to get into some songs and analyze some of the music of boy bands. But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit about your background and how you got to write Pop Sonnets. Okay, so... um... I'm a software engineer by by day and then a I guess a sonneteer by night or had been at least. I came across a sonnet on Tumblr written by a gentleman named Johnny Casto Ardern who had responded to somebody on Twitter posting a very very cheesy um Shakespearean rendition of a line of the chorus of Thrift Shop by Macklemore and transform this as I popeth some tags sort of approach to it to a full-blown beautifully written sonnet and I just remember looking at it and going why why aren't there more of these so can you just explain to our listeners what a sonnet is sure a sonnet a Shakespearean sonnet specifically is a 14 line poem um, written in iambic pentameter which means it's um, 10 syllables per line uh, with a uh, unstressed stressed sort of rhythmic pattern so the opening line to shakespeare sonnet 18 is shall i compare thee to a summer's day so you get that sort of da 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 rhythm to it um and then the shakespearean sonnet has a specific rhyme scheme which is a b a b c d c d e f e f g g there are a number of other different sonnet types um the italian sonnet is built in uh, a set of eight with it with just two lines for those eight lines and then a final uh sextet which is another set of two lines english we don't end all of our words and vowels so much so it's a lot harder to rhyme so we the the traditional shakespearean sonnet deals with a much larger set of of rhymes and just deals in uh three sets of quatrains four lines each and then the final couplet and then seven rhymes over the course of the the 14 lines so and uh as shakespeare tends to write it's and as I've sort of adapted all, all of the pop songs that I've adapted uh, into Elizabethan English, so you, you, using thou instead of you and stuff like that. Awesome. So you saw this sonnet of a Macklemore song, and it really inspired you to write more additional sonnets that were like that. Yeah, at the dating dating the project pretty specifically. Um, I remember seeing that and going, I immediately need to write a sonnet for Call Me Maybe. 
by Carly Rae Jepsen, <laughs> which I was obsessed with at the time, as the rest of the world rightly was. Um, and then it just turned into a little project for myself just to amuse myself. Just I found it a very engaging language exercise, trying to adapt it both in terms of um, content, trying to get everything to fit into that meter, to get into that rhyme scheme. Uh, my favorite little metaphor for building, for doing sonnets is, um, it's almost like a Rubik's cube. It's very, it's a very rigid form, so you know when you've got it right. Um, so you just keep playing with the ideas of the lyrics and you know the content of everything until and and just keep turning it and turning it around until you've got that rhyme scheme and they've got that meter set properly. In your spare time, do you write poetry? Are you super into Shakespeare? How did you get into writing sonnets? I'm not much of a Shakespeare enthusiast, though people assume I am. Um, it's actually a particular, I'm a big trivia player and Shakespeare is actually a big gap in my knowledge, even now. Um, which can get embarrassing real quick when because pe people expect that I will know all of the Shakespeare answers, um, but I ha I don't haven't written a lot of poetry other than sonnets in a long time. But I am a fairly avid songwriter, so but and so it, it sort of fits in both in terms of trying to fit language into a specific pattern of rhythm, trying to account for the all of the ways that a song can express emotion and being cognizant of that when trying to adapt for something whether you don't have that back like the the musical background in order to sort of reinforce everything else so tell us a little bit about your book what was is the purpose of your book it was it you said it was just more of an exercise and if you could kind of go into the background on the book development and why you chose the songs that you chose Backing up from the book a little bit, I suppose, um, the Tumblr started as one of the, the, the most wonderful people I know in my life was uh, applying to a job at Tumblr. And as part of the process of going into, uh, going into that interview, wanted to start her own Tumblr and encouraged me to sort of jump in and she'd have someone to follow and we'd have, you know, sort of build that experience and we could talk about it going into the her process of her trying to start working there. And so my immediate response was, what do I have, what do I want a Tumblr for? You know, what am I going to do? And she was like, well, you've been writing all those weird sonnet things, right? And I was like, okay, I guess that's an idea. I'll turn that into a creative project for a little bit and see how that goes. So I just started posting them once a week on Thursdays and inexplicably that just sort of took off um i went from having a couple of dozen followers after six months of doing it or something like that to suddenly having ten thousand overnight and just it just sort of exploded and in the, the process of that um a literary agent reached out and said i think this is a book and i said great uh so it this is the book itself is really just a happy accident of me goofing around and wanting to read more of these. Um, in terms of the selection, a lot of it was really just what I had available at that point, um, though it was also a big, um, not a, though there was also the consideration that the publisher specifically wanted half of the book to be original only to the book. Only half of the sonnets in the book also appear on the Tumblr, so there's a good mix of, um, so, a lot of it is whatever I thought was the best stuff at the time when we were putting the book together and then trying to find other songs that would hold up over the course of, 
you know, a couple of years after being published. Awesome. Awesome. What a cool story. So was there a particular sonnet that really blew up on the Tumblr page? Like, was there that one moment or was it more of just a gradual increase? It seemed like it was it the one that really took off, although everything sort of blew up at once, it felt like. But the one that really took off was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what do you think it was about that song that people really connected with? Was it the kind of rhythm? Is it because it's kind of like a maybe the nostalgia piece, maybe the fact that it's so easy to kind of recite the beat in your head, maybe? I think that's part of it. Honestly, the thing I think that really took made that one work in terms of making it go viral was how obvious it was from the jump. A lot of them, people tend, a lot of people read the book like a, like a puzzle game, honestly. Um, that I've heard of people like using it as a party game where they'll like read something out and see how quickly people can figure out what song it is. With that one, it's immediate. The opening three words of it are from Western Philadelphia and you can't miss it. Oh my gosh. I think you just, <laughs> I think you just inspired me for what to do when the next time I entertain friends. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I mean, honestly, like it, it got to, it's so much of a guessing game sort of thing. One of these was they gave the opening line on who wants to be a millionaire as a question, which is super fun, especially as a giant trivia nerd myself. But yeah. Let's get into one of your sonnets that you created. So I know we wanted to talk about I Want It That Way. Before we get into kind of the breakdown of the song, what in your opinion do you think I Want It That Way is about? Because it's a very highly debated topic. I remember writing it, writing the sonnet and trying to pick it apart and trying to, um, how do I phrase this? preserve the ambiguity of the song in a way because and i don't i i know we've been talking about uh, trying not to um yuck on anyone's yum or anything and i don't mean to this to sound too critical but the song lyrically speaking is a bit of a mess it is it is (laughs) but as a songwriter what are your thoughts on max martin because i honestly think he's a genius songwriter because he is able to write a song that makes no sense that people are somehow able to connect with. Oh, for sure. That um, lyrically, I, this song, like I said, it, lyrically it's a mess, but it doesn't matter be, for a couple of for what I think are a couple of reasons. One is that he's just brilliant at putting together melody and harmony in an affecting way. Melody is king for Max Martin. Yeah. The the kicker of this thing, this song in particular is, and I just, I was trying to do my due diligence and research today and discovered, and you probably know this already, um, but this is news to me that they rewrote the lyrics for this song to make sense. They recorded it, brought it to the label and everyone agreed that it was so much worse. So just like finding, even just like finding the right vowel sounds or like getting the, the rhythm of things in a specific way just because it doesn't make, just because you don't lay the lyrics out in front of you, like the lyrics aren't the piece of art. Like with the sonnet, then yes, like the lyrics have the, there aren't lyrics. It's just a poem. Like that's, you have the full dimension of it in front of you. But with this, like there's so much emotion bound up 
not just only in the lyrics, but the way that you inflect on it, the way the melody goes, the way the rhythm goes, just the sound of the vowels, like really pulls everything into a separate piece that goes beyond the lyrics. Like just as a silly example, like the lyrics O and baby as just single words are used all over pop music and they can mean so many different things depending how on how you set them. That's so true. (laughs) So like, the lyrics don't have to make sense on their own because they're not the whole piece. Yeah, exactly. Again, melody is king. Yeah. And the way that certain words are pronounced is it it just really it's just there to service the melody and enhance the melody, which Absolutely. I find so fascinating. I actually made a video <laughs> about I want it that way, breaking this down and th- these same exact points too. And how they just threw it out because even though the song made sense, it just didn't have the same effect because it didn't have the same vowel sounds and it didn't hit at the same points either. Because sometimes certain vowels pack more of a punch than others, which is why me is pronounced may, right? (laughs) There's also another bit to it that I've sort of been thinking about today and I don't know whether... It necessarily makes sense, but the fact that the lyrics are really ambiguous, there are a few different avenues into the song based on the uh, on the like extreme ambiguity of the lyrics. One of those is that you can sort of insert your your story into it because it allows that room. There like the lack of specificity in terms of what it is and I want it that way or who's even talking in certain parts of it allow the story to sort of fit whatever narrative you're going through and whatever it is you're going through, which makes it universal in a way that having too much specificity might lose. Um, there's a couple of songs that I was, that I really love um, as a songwriter that the core, like the chorus, the lines in the chorus make it feel like you could read it in multiple ways. Um, thinking just, off the top of my head, like um, uh, there's a Vampire Weekend song called Campus. Love that song. <laughs> it's a great song. And the chorus line is, uh, how am I supposed to pretend I never want to see you again? And you can repunctuate it in your head. And the way he sings it is totally ambiguous is, how am I supposed to pretend I never want to see you again? Like I desperately want to see you. Or is it, how am I supposed to pretend I never want to see you again? Like, how am I supposed to put up this front? Like, I just never want to see you again. And you can listen to that song and have it mean one way or the other, depending on what you're going through. And this, I don't think it was intended to be like, we're going to word this in such a way where it's like totally ambiguous and you can read it either way. But it totally works that way. Like, you can be going through so many different scenarios and the song will just speak to you because it it just makes sense to you as you're listening to it. Oh, my gosh. It's a mess but it's also genius at the same time yeah (laughs) you want to know what i think why uh, what i want it that way is about absolutely so i think it's about a long distance relationship and not wanting to be apart and i think that the biggest clue to that is in the music video it's it's filmed at a um in airport yeah the specifics of that is is still unknown but i think that's essentially what the song is about that's how i always interpreted it at least oh totally yeah all right so there is a lot of like distance reference two worlds apart you know 
no matter the distance I want you to yeah, that's totally that may, that tracks really well. Okay. Do you want to recite it? Sure. Okay, awesome. All right, here goes. Thou art a flame that burns within my breast, the singular desire within my heart. Believe my wish most solemnly profess that we should ne'er again be made apart. Yet we are twain, it seems thou art worlds away. I cannot reach thee with my outstretched hand to soothe thy aching soul if thou shouldst say thy heart had other circumstances planned. Pray speak of why our love such torment holds, and prithee say why this must folly be. No, tell me not. I fear what might unfold if our two fondest hopes should not agree. I cannot hold my passion long at bay, for I do want love fashioned strong that way. Snaps. Beautiful. <laughs> Do you want to recite Bye Bye Bye? I, I might as well. I might as well. Might as well make it even, right? <laughs> All right. Tonight our courtship ends without delay. For though the lady shall too much protest, our romance brought me nothing but dismay, and love improper must be laid to rest. My passion for thee had no earthly bounds, despite the dearth of reciprocity. Yet now I wish to see thee off these grounds, for I'm resolved to solitary be. No longer shall I be thy doting fool. Goodbye to thee. Auf Wiedersehen. Adieu. While I've no inclination to be cruel, my heart desires to tell thee we are through. Though it sounds crazy, tis my truth to tell. We are no more, so fare thee well, well, well. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you. I like the uh, the German and the French uh, nods in there. <laughs> <laughs> Not something that you saw in uh, Shakespearean sonnets. Not often, no. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually you run out of ways to say goodbye <laughs> multiple times in a poem. That's true. Okay, so thoughts on Bye Bye Bye. I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by how good it was when it first came out. I love the songs that JC starts off with because he has so much energy. How how the song is written when JC starts, the, the emphasis on tonight, fight, the, it just, it really packs a punch. He does a, a marvelous vo- uh, job of enunciating that. Doing this tonight. Yeah, it's, yeah. He kills it performance-wise. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> Honestly, this podcast is literally like 80% JC Shazay. <laughs> <laughs> Just talking about how incredible he was. It's, it's not it's not empty. You're like recognizing talent. Like recognize the talent. There's no there's no shame. Back to bye bye bye, breaking down the song. Wait looking at the lyrics, this is way wordier than I remember it being. Like, there is so much more in this, like, in terms of just volume, but it's so, it, it's weird how, how do I phrase this? I'm really, I'm genuinely impressed at how the volume of lyrics and the, with without repetition, but also how direct it all is as well. They're not hiding behind metaphor. They are not beating around the bush or like, you screwed me over. I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, that that's a, those are those are all really good points because in most in most boy band songs, the the number of words is usually pretty low. Yeah, and also it, it, there's a lot of metaphor usage, and you're so right. In bye bye bye, it's so different because it's very direct. That, oh my gosh, those are such good points. 
wow, I can tell you're a songwriter. And can't you tell <laughs> that I'm keeping up right with you? Yep. <laughs> um, again, music nerd. Why don't we do what makes you beautiful next? Here goes. Thy confidence in nature's gifts is strained. I know not why, for thine's a pleasing face. Pray witness all the staring unconstrained by those who mark thy entrance to a place. Thy naked face is beauty unsurpassed. Thy countenance is not by rouge improved. Like Helen's it could launch a navy vast, yet thy reflection leaves thee still unmoved. My life, once dark, is bathed in brilliant light, for thou hast graced it with thy presence sweet. Yet thou not see the passion thou ignite when thou hast fixed thy gaze upon thy feet. Thy charms are tempered with humility and makes thee still more beautiful to me. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciating the snaps. Yeah. Well, it's poetry, right? <laughs> so what are your thoughts on that song? I really like the place that I think it's coming from. Um, I really hate the final line of the chorus. That's what makes you beautiful. Yeah. That always rubs me the wrong way. I know where I know the where they're coming from, but I hate that line so much. I gotcha. I gotcha. That, that's why I changed it in the sonnet to that it makes thee still more beautiful and not just that's what makes you beautiful. So in terms of, you know, comparing sonnets to modern pop songs. Have you noticed that there's definitely a lot of similarities between the two? Thematically, particularly Shakespeare's sonnets were very much focused on romance. Less in terms of thematically, I do see a lot of overlap, in at least in the sense that you're working with a particular sort of economy between pop music and sonnets. Like with sonnets, you are limited you have a hard limit of 140 syllables to get what you're trying to get across with pop music. Generally speaking, you're working somewhere around three minutes and not too much over unless you're Taylor Swift and then you can get away with a 12 minute single. But Exactly. But I mean, as we kind of stated, there's a lot of repetition within modern yeah. pop music. So really you can have that limitation and still convey the same message. Sure. Particularly like if, you know, a, by and large, a chorus isn't going to change the the words in it from one to the next. So you're still working with probably s no more than three verses a chorus and a bridge most of the time. And I'm, even if you're going to like bust out of the that three minute hard cap that radio used to put on songs in the '60s, like when they finally did bust out of it, it's th a three minute pop song and then four minutes of na na na's for. Hey Jude is an example. So it's still working. It's still very much working within the same constrained palette. It's just you know expanding the form a little and pushing out in different spots. But the 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 core of it's still essentially there. Like it's still economy. You're not trying to write you know Homer's Odyssey each time out, or in a Gata de Vida if you're <laughs> to, to stick with the music metaphor. What are your thoughts on, you know, why boy bands get such a bad reputation when really their songs are just like any other pop song and why pop music in general has a bad reputation, even though all of these elements have existed within art for hundreds of years? Part of it is is the whole like high art versus low art thing, um, which I've never quite figured out where that started. Um 
But I also think it's kind of hilarious because a lot of what people consider high art is like Shakespeare, and he was, by and large, was writing plays for everyone to go to. It was very much not bifurcated that way at the time. People were, you know, in the pit, like, throwing mud at, you know, Macbeth and yelling things at the actors mid-performance. Shakespeare would be baffled to, to find out that he was considered, like the paragon of high culture now, I would, I think. So that's part of it. And, you know, uh, preaching to the choir, I suppose, but a lot of it, I think, is just culture being what it is, is, is going to, by default, look down on whatever it is that's marketed toward or enjoyed by teenage girls. Like, it's, it's I just, it's that straightforward. Yeah, teenage teenage girls and also LGBTQ folk as well. Absolutely, yeah. You saw that a lot with disco music in the 70s. Yeah. Um, I mean, those songs were legitimately great songs. And people were literally protesting concerts and, and radio stations to stop playing disco music when really it was a music art form that was behind the scenes created by people of color, LGBTQ folk, women, uh, a lot of women of color. So, I mean, you've kind of seen that throughout music history of people looking down on certain music that's marketed to certain groups. Absolutely. There's also such as some component of it, which is the the very toxic masculine um, inclination toward pu- putting it down, like is raising themselves up. Like the there is no better indication of all of this sort of wrapped together than Disco Demolition Night. Not only did it was it just sort of dumb on its face, but also so destructive that it was the, it was done. But it was it was done. The actual like demolition of the records was supposed to be done b- between games at a double header, and they had to forfeit the second game because things went that out of hand. Like, which if that doesn't wrap up, like how weird and gross dudes can be i don't know what what does i also just think it's interesting that that's known as the day that disco died when disco influence has been in pop music for a long time without people realizing it my favorite just like a, a wonderful discovery i made recently just putzing around on youtube was a conversation between i can't remember I can't remember who he was talking with, but Dave Grohl was talking about how much he'd been listening to disco records and how much it influenced his drumming. And that spe- specifically what he was calling out was the opening, the, the flams at the beginning of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. So like the absolute antithesis of what people would think of as being like grunge is the absolute is so far removed from disco. Nope. The the opening to the the grunge song is disco flavored. Like no one escaped disco. It's so interesting, and you know another music style that a lot of people are so quick to look down on is New Jack Swing. Mm. I don't know if you, they have been super influential. Like Bruno Mars has taken a lot of New Jack Swing influence. All of the boy bands that 
came after them all were influenced by that sound. It, it's it's a, it's a topic and I can't wait to do that episode because I don't think a lot of people really know too much about New Jack Swing. A lot of people don't even know what New Jack Swing is. And once they hear Bobby Brown, they're like, oh, okay, that was New Jack Swing. <laughs> <laughs> like Belle Biv DeVoe. I feel like New Jack Swing was so similar to disco because it was something that was created for the masses and it was looked down upon, but it was all people of color that were creating this, right? And it yeah. was influenced by so many other different music forms like electronica, um, hip hop, R&B, soul, gospel. Even though it's so of its time, like disco was, it still remained so influential. Totally. We usually, when we have new folks on, we ask them what their music journey is what music they listened to when they were younger and how that kind of progressed over time. I didn't know if you wanted to get into that at all. I've been a nerd my whole life. Uh, I'll, I'll start saying it that way. I've been a, a, a huge nerd my whole life. I remember um, my mom and my grandparents like foisting off like classical music tapes and stuff to me. Um, it was the first thing I remember like having in my Walkman. Um, but the first real big music discoveries I remember having were Weird Al, which I suppose relates to the book pretty well. <laughs> it does. It does, actually. And then the first, the the real big one for me, and this is, again, tremendously nerdy, was someone showed me the video demo provided with the Windows 95 install CD, which was the uh, the music video for Weezer's Buddy Holly. I just remembered becoming super obsessed with it and just sitting at my computer at home watching it over and over and my older brother at one point got pretty sick of me doing that and came over to me with the blue album in his hands and said like if you're going to keep doing this like at least listen to the rest of it and it was at that so my brother and I are um very different people um he's six foot four I think he like built like a linebacker because he was one um and I was like this tiny little I'm eight years younger than him I was maybe eight years old so I was maybe four foot I was built like a broom um and you know letterman gap in my teeth and a buzz cut with my ears sticking out like I was the biggest like the most gooberish goober you can imagine so and my brother was just effortlessly cool and handsome and so to see him handing me the um the blue album and seeing that like not only could nerds rock like my people like my brother would listen to nerds rock like just blew my mind and i immediately was like all right i i want to do music now and it really carried over i ended up um picking up the guitar in high school um ended up going to i have a degree in music um but yeah, and then all through high school, sort of picking up all different sorts of stuff, uh, got into punk, got into indie rock, like with the Pixies, um, a lot of classic rock. And then once I got to college and started studying music again, got back into the classical thing again and more avant-garde stuff. Um, and by the time I, around the time the, the book came out, it was real fun getting known for like um, riffing on like Taylor Swift and you know, Bruno Mars and the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC while I was sitting around listening to like really droney psychedelic rock. Um, but yeah, these days I actually have started um, 
DJing for an internet radio station over the last couple of months, playing a lot of like power pop and like stuff like that, which is fun. So a little bit of my own music journey. So I have just been <laughs> all over the place. So I'm a, so I'm a music nerd. So mm-hmm. I like every single style of music. I was actually raised by two punk rockers. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was raised by two music nerds and they had a child that became also a music nerd. So I'm not just like this boy band girl. I have a wealth of knowledge of all different styles of music. And I'm basically applying that knowledge to pop music and boy bands because there's a legitimate argument for the legitimacy of their music. I will also argue that Weezer was a boy band. Okay. So this is our definition on the show of what a boy band is, right? Okay. So a boy band is an ensemble of young men who are marketed to teens playing catchy tunes with a catchy hook, catchy melody. That was Weezer. They had catchy hooks and that's what got them on the radio, right? And they were marketed to teens. Really, they were kind of a boy band. Were they marketed to more than just women? Yeah, that's probably why they aren't considered a boy band. Why are the Jonas Brothers considered a boy band, but Weezer isn't? Because it's all about the marketing and who they were marketed to. That's certainly a pretty big component of it, yeah. I'm trying to think if I can, if there's any other like sideways ways into that. I don't know, but that's yeah, I, I could I'm convinced. Just just to prod up the theory a little, were the Beatles a boy band throughout their whole career, or just early on? Every boy band has that transition, okay, to that manufactured look, where they're wearing same style clothing, and then they kind of become more individuals, and they just kind of grow up a little bit. Because think about how young they started off, right? Yeah, super young. It's just it's just part of growing up, really. And you see it in literally every single boy band. In sync really changed the, their sound, mm-hmm. you know, further into their career. Their career was really short, but they experimented a lot with electronica, two-step garage, which was huge in Europe at the time, which is such a stark contrast between the beginning of their career, which was just like any other boy band at that time, right? The Beatles were the same. The Beatles started off as this formulaic sounding band of that time. And then they really experimented with their sound. So I would say that they follow the exact timeline that a lot of other boy bands have followed. It's interesting though, because I feel like using your example for of the pop punk bands of like the late 90s, early 2000s, Someone like a Blink-182 doesn't follow that pattern because like they're super early stuff. Even into like Dude Ranch, I wouldn't sort of qualify that as what I would normally put as a boy band so much as like Enema of the State definitely was way more marketed to that. So that I'm, I'm not saying that they're not boy bands. It's just that it that breaks the, the pattern of that where it starts out early as definitely like definitely qualifying as a boy band it's just a different pattern to it right yeah no that's actually that's a really good point that is a really good point but they ended up becoming one for sure yeah for sure even i mean they 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 tried to be the anti-boy band but in their efforts of trying to be the anti-boy band they themselves became one i mean even even going so far as to like parody i want it that way in uh (laughs) in their video but Eric, I saw the Backstreet Boys to Blink-182 pipeline. Like, I saw that happen. 
<laughs> that was a thing that happened. People, my friends of mine literally replaced their Backstreet Boys posters on their walls with Blink-182 posters. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like that actually did happen. And so they 100% are a boy band. The other thing too is this is, I've known about this for a long time. This is not a newfound thing that I've discovered. It's because my parents were so big into the punk scene that they were like, these guys are boy bands. We know actual <laughs> punk music. This is pop music and they are boy bands. So, <laughs> yeah. I've, and, and I've, so I've known this for a long time and I'm not, you know, I liked all those bands too. I'm not saying this in a negative way because there is the right. misogyny aspect of the disdain for the word boy band too, right? But yeah, I'm j- it's it's just really we're just kind of putting them all into this category so that people can understand that music is music. If you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. If you connect with it, great. If you don't, don't judge other people for liking what they like. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for this awesome conversation and hope to have you back on the podcast soon. I hope so. Thank you so much. During the time of the golden era of boy bands, late 90s, early 2000s, what was so interesting to me to see is the new metal music that came out during that time too, and how it was supposed to be the antithesis to the, the whole boy band thing and the bubble come pop, but it was so, taken to such an extreme where it was just like, yeah, we're masculine. We're just like, Ugh. <laughs> and looking back on it now, it's just like, oh God. <laughs> And for every action, there is definitely an even greater reaction. That's for sure. I don't really feel like there's a new metal revival coming. Like no one is going back to that well to draw on it. As much as Fred Darst might want to try. <laughs> his his like reinvention recently has been a real weird thing to witness. What I do find interesting is pop punk is back now. I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah. And Machine Gun Kelly and Travis Barker have single-handedly like brought that back. <laughs> and I never would have thought, I thought that that was very much of its time. Thank you so much for listening to This Must Be Pop. Add us on Instagram for more content and to be the first to find out which band will be featured in the next episode at This Must Be Pop Pod. That's This Must Be P-O-P-P-O-D on Instagram. Got a question or suggestion? Email us at this must be pop podcast at gmail.com.